Well, we continue in our Mark's Gospel series, heading to Mark chapter 15. So go ahead, grab those Bibles, have them open in front of you. Now, many people ask me why I start every sermon in the same way. Why do I always ask you to go and grab your Bibles? Well, the simple reason is I don't want you to leave this sermon saying Ross has said this or Ross says this. I want you to leave this sermon saying the Word of God says this or I have read in the Word of God and I read this. And the reason for that is I don't want you to take man's word for things, my word for things. I want you to take the Word of God as your foundation to the lessons that we learn from it. That is why it's important that you have your own Bible open in front of you so you can read God's word, not just simply hear my word spoken. And that is why I say, grab your Bibles, have them open up at Mark chapter 15, so you can read the very words of God that we'll be studying together today. With that in mind, where have we been recently in our sermon series? Well, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas and Judas has given over Jesus to the priests and the high council known as the Sanhedrin. That's the Jewish Supreme Court. And during this time, false testimony has been given about Jesus and the Sanhedrin has determined that Jesus has been blasphemous and therefore deserves punishment. And that punishment would be death. Now, while all this was happening to Jesus, not so far away, Peter was denying Jesus, denying all knowledge of him. You see, the disciples at this time were deserting Jesus, running away from the situation. And Peter is the worst by denying even knowing Jesus in his life. Today, as we head into Mark 15, we continue that trial of Jesus and we move from the Sanhedrin to Pilate, the Roman governor. And as we follow this trial, what I want you to do is pay specific attention to the different characters at play in the narrative. What we'll see is each character comes with different motives and therefore differing behaviours. And as we move towards some application, once we've done the work in the passage, what we're going to see is that we need to look at our own motivations and bring them into question. And if we're ever in doubt about what our motivations are, we need only look at how we respond to life to see where our heart is. You see, Harry Ironside, a 19th century theologian, once preached, Christianity is not just repeating John 3.16 or Acts 16.31. It is yielding the heart and the life to Christ. You see, what we want to be doing is looking at our hearts, questioning our motivations, seeing if they're Christ-like, because we want to yield our hearts to Christ so that he can transform them so we can live in a Christ-like manner. And today, as we go through Mark 15, we're going to see the behaviour of Jesus and therefore the example that we are to live by. And so, as I've said, with the word of God open at Mark chapter 15, we're going to begin together at verse 1. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Now we see it's the next day. During the previous night, the chief priests and the rest of the Sanhedrin had discussed and established, and I, I should say falsely established, the crime that Jesus had committed, that of blasphemy. Now they have settled the crime, the next morning they bind Jesus and bring him before the governor for sentencing. Now remember, they've already decided in their hearts that Jesus deserves death. There is a problem though. The Sanhedrin did not have the power to hand out the death sentence. Only the Roman governor could do this. 
Even if the Sanhedrin were allowed to give the death sentence, they were not allowed to carry out that sentence because that had to be done by the Roman Empire. This is all evidenced in John 18.31, which says, Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. So the Sanhedrin the next morning took Jesus to Pilate. And notice they're already treating him like a criminal. They bound him and led him away. And who did they lead him to? Well, not, no, not much is known about Pilate, but what we do know is he is the fifth governor of Judea and he served under the emperor Tiberius. And this governor, Pilate, would decide the fate of Jesus. Verse two, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. Now we're no longer in the Sanhedrin. This is not the Jewish Supreme Court where the Jewish law and its interpretation was the standard to keep. No, this was the Roman court. And Pilate was not concerned about religious fanatics or religious laws. He was concerned about one thing only, and that was the Roman Empire and the power that he wielded in that empire. Therefore, the Sanhedrin had to come up with some way of grabbing the attention of Pilate. They would have to come up with how the kingdom of Pilate would be under question or under threat. You see, Pilate wouldn't have known much about Jesus, and so the Sanhedrin fed him information. And look what they fed him. They fed him the information that he had claimed to be the king of the Jews. Well, now this might be an issue for Pilate, for maybe there's a rival in the land for his kingdom. So when Jesus was brought before Pilate, Jesus was asked, are you the king of the Jews? Interestingly, the Greek word here for king is basilus, which refers to a subject king, a tetrarch, or those who would wear the imperial purple robes in Rome. It's not quite the same as governor or ruler, but certainly in the use of the word, we see that Pilate was certainly concerned about this claim. If Jesus was the king of Jews, is he in fact a threat to the Roman Empire? Yet at the same time, the man of Jesus that stood before Pilate would not look like a king and certainly didn't have anything to his name. So potentially there was a bit of sarcasm here. Are you really a king? Importantly, look at how Jesus responds. He calmly and very gently says, you have said so. Now we do get a little bit more detail when we go to John's gospel, John 18, 37. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to be a witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Now it seems odd that Mark would only use four words when John uses a whole paragraph to explain the response of Jesus. Now to get the understanding of why this is the case, the clue really is to where they got their sources from. You see, it was likely that John was present somewhere in the crowd, somewhere in the vicinity, and therefore could write in a first-hand knowledge way. Yet Mark often uses Peter's knowledge, Peter's writings, as his source for his gospel. And so where was Peter at this time? Well, we don't know. The previous day, Peter had denied Jesus. So it's highly unlikely that he was anywhere near Jesus now in this court before Pilate. Either way, whether we take Mark's gospel or John's gospel, what is clear is that Jesus is calm, he is gentle, he doesn't himself declare himself a king, rather he says, you say that I am a king. 
Verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Clearly, the interrogation wasn't going the way the priests had hoped, so they brought more accusations against Jesus. In fact, so many that they're not mentioned by name. Mark simply just notes that they accused Jesus with many accusations. Pilate once again gives that opportunity to Jesus to respond to such accusations. And once again, just look at how Jesus responds. He is silent on the matter. Pause there for a moment and just try and picture this in your minds. Accusations are flying fast and hard against Jesus. They're getting more and more ridiculous. The name of Jesus is entirely being ripped apart. He's being ridiculed. He is hated and they want him killed. Yet Jesus remains completely silent. Pilate had a front row seat and notice how he responds to this behaviour. Pilate is amazed. He couldn't believe his eyes. This man didn't try to defend himself. He didn't try to accuse anyone. He didn't even try to explain what was happening. He just let it all happen in front of him. You see, there are times where silence is better than words. There was nothing that Jesus could say to convince Pilate or the people. The silence of Jesus, to some extent, is a silence of tragedy. There was only ever going to be one conclusion, the sentencing of Jesus to death. And all that reminds me of Exodus 14, 14. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. It is at this point in Luke's gospel, specifically in Luke 23, that we find out that Jesus was carted off to Herod. You see, Pilate wanted nothing to do with the situation. He clearly saw that Jesus was innocent and was of no threat to him, so he wanted Herod to make the decision. But that plan backfires because Herod sends Jesus back to Pilate, and therefore in Mark's gospel we pick up the trial once again with Jesus before Pilate in verse 6. Now at the feast he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked, and among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection was a man called Barabbas. Now Pilate wanted out of this situation, that was clear, but there seemed to be no way for him to get out and still look good. But there was one option left, the governor would use a prisoner exchange programme. At the end of the feast people could ask for a prisoner to be released and the governor would allow it. And Pilate this time would have two options. Jesus would be the first, and I think it's clear that it would be the preferred option for Pilate. But there was another, that of Barabbas. Now little is known about Barabbas, but we know that in some form of uprising, he had murdered someone and he was now in jail awaiting further sentencing. There's lots of debate about his name and just to touch on the subject, most commentators do seem to agree on the following, that Bar means son of and Abba means father. So when you put the two together, Barabbas is the son of the father. Further to this though, there is a lot of speculation about the first name of Barabbas. It could have been Jesus, which is a fairly common name actually at the time. So if you take the speculation and the name together, you have Jesus, son of the father. It's quite interesting, isn't it? Was this his actual name? Or was this just a title given to a prisoner? Or is there a play in words here that somehow are being lost in the context? 
Again, we know very little about this. And when there is a lot of speculation, you need to take a step back and see what the passage says. So what does the passage actually say? Well, it says there was a prisoner called Barabbas who had murdered someone and he can now be offered up to the people for release. What is clear is that it would be ludicrous for the people to choose Barabbas over Jesus. He was a murderer and Pilate could tell that Jesus was no more than just someone the priest hated. And so Pilate waited for that time that came up in verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. At this stage, Pilate had a plan. All he had to do was present to the people their options. Now, before moving on, Pilate's got a crowd before him. But that crowd is likely not the same crowd that we saw on Palm Sunday. That crowd that sang and praised Jesus saying, Hosanna, save us, save us, Jesus. This was likely a different crowd. This crowd was made up of Sanhedrin supporters, Pharisee sympathisers, potentially even supporters for Barabbas. Essentially, this was not a crowd that loved Jesus. This is a crowd that would have hated Jesus. Let's continue verse 9. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man that you call the king of the Jews? Upon request, Pilate enters the discussion on prisoner transfer. But how he goes about it, I think, is particularly intriguing. We already know that he would prefer not to be involved, but he cannot miss the opportunity to rile the religious leaders before him. He perceives that they are envious of Jesus. You see, Jesus has a following, one that has questioned the religious leaders, and Pilate thinks that they're simply trying to get rid of Jesus, so once again they could become the ones that people follow. But as much as Pilate wants out of this, he also has a petty vengeance in his tone. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? He doesn't use the name of Jesus. He doesn't say, do you want me to release Jesus? He uses the title. He was not honouring the position of Jesus. Rather, he was taunting the religious leaders. He was mocking them for he held the power and control over what would happen to their so-called king. Now, all this served to increase the hatred toward Jesus. With the priests stirring up the crowd, with anger spilling out, they demanded that Barabbas be released. Pilate, now in for a penny, might as well be in for a pound. What do you want me to do with the king of the Jews, he asked a second time. He knew what they wanted, but he could not help but show his power and control by asking a second time. Pilate's behaviour shows that internal dilemma. Do the right thing by Jesus or the right thing by the leaders? Let the leaders have control or show control over the leaders. Pilate and the priest, though, are not the only characters at play here. Look at the crowd and the decision they made. William Barclay points out that the crowd chose lawlessness instead of the one who kept the law. There's a Greek word for lawlessness and that word is anomia, anomia. It tells of a lawless streak that runs through your heart. The crowd chose their anomia. They chose to let wickedness reign. The choice then led to two outcomes. It led to war as they picked the murderer rather than peace because they rejected the one that would bring peace. The second is they picked hatred over love. 
They had two men before them, two purposes in their life. One was all about hatred, one was about love, and in their distinct choice, they chose to free evil and punish good. They chose to bring about hatred and quash love. The crowd was a significant character at play here, and they demanded that Barabbas should be released. Let's see how they respond to Pilate's question as to what should they do with Jesus. Verse 13, and they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. It seems so strange that the crowd was calling for Jesus to be crucified. Clearly, Barabbas is the murderer. He's the one that has taken life away. Jesus is the one that's brought healing and in the case of Lazarus and also the daughter, he brings life back to people. It's clear that the religious leaders had done their job well. The crowd looked to Jesus with nothing but hatred. Somehow the leaders had convinced them that Jesus was more evil than Barabbas. Yet the choice of punishment was also unusual for Jesus. You see, beheading was the traditional Roman death sentence. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves, foreigners, and extreme criminals like murderers. Jesus was not only taking Barabbas' place in terms of being punished, he was also taking the very punishment that Barabbas should have received. The crowd, though, was now in a frenzy. They screamed it over and over, crucify him, crucify him. They truly hated Jesus. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. He was also captivated by Jesus and his lack of response to accusations. He could sense the peace that was within Jesus. Yet he ignored the truth. He ignored the facts before him and he ordered, one, the immediate punishment of Jesus, and then two, the final death sentence of crucifixion. You see, Pilate was a coward. He felt the need to show his power. He felt the need to debate rather than stand on what is right. And in the end, he was led to satisfy the crowd, to let the mob make the decision for him. He allowed himself to be manipulated into letting go a murderer and sentencing to death the Messiah. Ego and politics decided his direction and cowardice sealed his decision. Now we're going to stop there today. That's as much of the passage that we're going to look at. We've done the work. So now it's time to look at application. Remember what I said at the start. Look at how the characters behaved because of their motivations. So having done the work, we need now to draw lessons and application from each one of these characters to our own lives so that this isn't just knowledge, but it's wisdom. It is understanding put into practice. And so that is what application is about, is about taking what we've learned and putting it into practice. And the first character I want us to look at is the religious leaders, driven by hatred and envy. They plan their attack. They seek their wicked desires to be fulfilled. When it doesn't go their way, they push all the harder. They whip up support. They lie. They cheat. They influence. They do whatever is needed to be done to get their way. It's not about standing for what is right. It's about getting what they want, no matter the cost. I wonder, do you recognise yourself in them? Do you let frustration drive you? 
when it isn't going to plan, do you whip up support? Do you stoop to lower standards to ensure that you get your way? Do you lose sight of what is right and wrong because you're so focused on getting what you desire? Possibly you even lose sight of even what you wanted because now it's just about winning. Look how James describes all of this in a church setting in James 4 from verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. To spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. If our passions are not for Jesus, we will fight. If our desire is not for Jesus, we will hate and murder in our hearts. If our focus is not for Jesus, we will quarrel. If we do not seek Jesus, we will seek evil. And if we do not live for Jesus, we become unfaithful and an adulterous people. The religious leaders no longer focused on the holy God. They spiraled out of control and they sent the Lord Jesus to his death. If you do not live your life 100% committed to Jesus, to holiness before him and to his service, you will end up in the same way as these religious leaders, driven by wickedness and desire and being far from the truth. So ask yourself today this question, can you see yourself in these leaders? If you can, I beg of you, repent. The second character I want us to look at is the crowd. The crowd is made up of lots of different people. They're easily influenced. They are angry. They whip themselves up into a frenzy to the point where they call for a murderer to be released and an innocent man to be killed. The crowd found safety in numbers, but morality was weakened by an ever-increasing mob mentality. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to stand out from the crowd? Back in the day when I worked in London in the recruitment sector, we used to talk about finding that special one, that one that stood out from the crowd, the one that answered the questions in their original way, the one that would bring long-lasting change to a company, the one that deserved the job, the pay rise and the title. It could often take weeks for us to find that one, but when we did, a oh boy, there was excitement in the office. Why? Because it's hard to stand out from the crowd, so hard that few ever attempt to do so. Yet for the Christian, that is exactly what we've been called to do, to stand out from the crowd. Romans 12 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Simply put, we are not to look like the world. We are to not look to the world, sound like the world, think like the world, speak like the world. We're just simply not to be like the world. We're to stand out for Jesus. Consider your own life for a moment. How different do you look like from the world? How different do you look from your neighbour or your colleague or your family member that's not a Christian? Consider how you live, how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you spend your energy. Does it look different from the world? Or have you just become part of the crowd? The only way to stand out is to transform our minds and hearts through Jesus. We can't just click a button and somehow be different. We need the help of our Saviour and the Spirit to change and transform our lives. I say over and over again in my sermons, if your life is the same as it was last year, you're not growing in Christ and you're in danger of becoming just one of the crowd. I wonder, will any one of you stand out from the crowd 
for the sake of Jesus this week. I pray that you would dare do so. Thirdly, I want you to consider Pilate. What shall we say about Pilate? Well, he was confused as he struggled with his thoughts, frustrated as he dealt with the situation he wanted nothing to do with, arrogant as he lorded it over the priest, and a coward as he took the easy option of appeasing the crowd. He was a man who went to popular opinion rather than standing for what is right. Do you know, standing for truth and the word of God is hard. You're going to lose friends. People are going to speak ill of you and you will be pressured to change. You will always though have two options, to take the cowardly way out and appease the people or stand strong on the word of God boldly taught. And as we see in Pilate, it's all too easy to take that route that is least conflict. That is why we need the strength of the Lord. And as Andrew Murray wrote, the theologian in the 19th century, do not strive in your own strength. Cast yourself at the feet of the Lord Jesus and wait upon him in the sure confidence that he is with you and works in you. Strive in prayer. Let faith fill your heart. So will you be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might? Folks, we need to be on our knees in prayer for the enemy wants us weak. He wants us to take that cowardice route. But if we're on our knees and we are seeking the confidence of the Lord and the strength of the Spirit, we can stand and boldly proclaim the word of God. You see, we need prayer warriors so that we can be warriors of the word. And I want to be very clear, not warriors of opinion, that man-made, self-proclaimed, righteous viewpoint. No, I'm talking about warriors of the truth, standing up to be counted, boldly declaring that Jesus is the King and not caring for the cost that that would cost us right now on this earth. For we know the eternal reward is given to those who would boldly stand on the rock of Jesus Christ and say, I will not budge because he deserves all truth, honour, praise and glory. So let me ask you this, will you be a warrior for Jesus this week or are you gonna take the coward's way out? Fourth and finally, we have one more character and that is Jesus. How could we ignore Jesus in this passage? In chaos, he is calm. In accusation, he is at peace. His silence is compelling and his behaviour is amazing. He is innocent yet hated. He is the all-powerful Messiah, but he is a humble saviour. Jesus is different, not just by his actions, but at the very core of his being. He is different from all those who carry hatred and anger and envy and jealousy and ego, for none of those things exist in his core. So what shall we take from this? Well, listen just to the repeated words of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Ephesians 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you get the picture? We are to be like Jesus, not like the priests, not like the crowd, not like Pilate, but like Jesus. We are to imitate him. And what does that mean? Well, before you think, ask yourself, would Jesus think these thoughts? Before you speak, ask yourself, would Jesus say these words? 
Before you act, ask yourself, would Jesus act in this way? Before you motivate yourself, ask yourself, would Jesus motivate himself in this way? Before you do anything in life, ask yourself, would Jesus do this? And here's the kicker of it all. Don't just ask yourself, actually do what Jesus would do. You see, so often I hear and see of Christians knowing they are doing wrong, knowing that Jesus probably wouldn't do or say what they're about to do and say, but they do it anyway. And they give some form of excuse that goes something like this. It was the heat of the moment. I was tired. I've just got struggles in my life. You see, those excuses are simply not good enough. You know, sorry, Jesus, I spoke words that were sinful. Sorry, Jesus, I acted in a sinful way. Sorry, Jesus, that I thought evil thoughts. But you know, I was just a bit tired today. It just doesn't cut it before the Lord Jesus Christ. We know our actions don't save us. We know that is done through faith in Jesus Christ. But we know that as we are saved, as we are brought to Jesus, as we bring salvation to our hearts and our souls through the cross of Christ, we are transformed and renewed and therefore we no longer behave in the same way. If you are still behaving in the old way, still making excuses for those sins, then you're not transformed. And if you're not transformed, you're likely blocking the Spirit to transform you. And if you're blocking the Spirit from your soul to be transformed, then your soul is in danger because you're living a way that is not acceptable and pleasing to God. And you're refusing renewal and refreshment in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, friends, the lesson is clear from today's passage. Be like Jesus. That's it. When you get up, be like Jesus. When you talk, be like Jesus. When you act, be like Jesus. When you think, be like Jesus. When we truly grasp this as the church, the church will become a beautiful beacon of hope and love in our society. Souls upon souls will see the light of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God will expand. So here is the simple challenge for us this week. It's simple, it is profound, it is clear. Here it is. Be like Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we take up that challenge to be like Jesus, that you would work on our hearts and on our minds, that you would transform them, that you would kill in us those self-righteous thoughts, that you would kill in us those sinful acts, thoughts and words, and you would replace them with the glory of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would be like Jesus. We pray that we wouldn't be whipped up by the crowd, that we wouldn't lie and cheat and steal, that we wouldn't just try to win, but instead we would be all for Jesus, all for his glory, all for his kingdom. So Father, as the church, as we do that this week, we pray for your strength. We pray for your might. We pray for your hope and peace in our lives so that we can be ambassadors for the gospel. And Father, as we are like that together as one body, we pray that the church would be a beacon of hope and light and that souls upon souls would become Christians, that we wouldn't be shooting ourselves in the foot with silly behavior, silly words, silly thoughts, evil things, 
Father, that we would proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would stand on the rock of Jesus Christ, that we would proclaim him boldly and that your kingdom would expand. And so, Father, I pray for everyone listening and watching this sermon that they would take up the challenge to be like Jesus. They would repent from their sins. They would confess their sins. They would be forgiven before the Lord Jesus and they would be wonderfully living the life that is like Jesus Christ. Father, we pray this in your precious name. Amen.